I think that we make a big mistake and we're not very compassionate when we think that somebody who struggles with same-sex attraction, for them to give up their same-sex attraction is akin to telling someone to give up broccoli for a week. We have to understand that uh, this attraction runs so deep inside of them in the same way that a heterosexual person is extremely driven by their heterosexual desire. Homosexual people are deeply driven by their homosexual desire. And so it's not compassionate and it's dismissive and it really doesn't do justice to what we understand sin to be in the theology of sin in the New Testament to kind of just um, in in a very half-hearted or light way tell homosexuals to give up their practices like that. I like a quote that I read from Al Mohler. He said, We need to love them more than their gay friends do, and we need to love them more than they love their homosexuality. And I think that's kind of at the heart of it. It's interesting to me that more and more young people are experimenting with homosexuality and bisexuality, and it's almost now outside the church for sure, and and unfortunately maybe even inside the church. You you haven't figured out who you are sexually until you've tried everything, and that we need to understand as a church that that's the culture in which we're preaching the gospel. Hold the Bible's teaching about sin, but we equally uphold the Bible's teaching about the gospel and the grace of the gospel and the power of the gospel to, to change lives. And we need to believe, we need to tenaciously believe that the gospel really is the remedy for homosexual struggle with same-sex attraction. Hi, this is Dr. Chuck Betters, and Mark Inc. Ministries has been producing resources now for many years, the latest of which is a series of resources on same-sex attraction. Today, we are blessed to have with us some men who have had a tremendous impact on the lives of many people, two of which are very special to me in another way, and one of which is a friend from long ago. And I want to introduce these men to you as we're going to discuss today the topic of the church's response to the cultural shifts that have taken place on the issue of homosexuality. I have with us uh, Reverend Jim Weaver. Uh, Jim has been a friend of mine for many years. He is a the senior pastor of Presbyterian Church in America Congregation, and uh, he will be entering the mission field soon. And We know that Jim has uh, quite a bit of expertise in the area of biblical interpretation, and we're glad to have you with us, Jim. First of all, as a pastor, I'd like to ask you, what has your church's response been to the cultural changes that have taken place on the acceptance of homosexuality? Well, I think that our response has been to recognize that, first of all, homosexuality is a sin. It's a very serious sin. But there are lots of very serious sins, and I think the church can err in maybe putting homosexuality at sort of the top of the list of serious sins that the church needs to address, and therefore alienating people who really need to hear the gospel and what Jesus Christ offers all sinners. So Jesus Christ came, he was full of grace, which means he was loving towards sinners. He uh, fraternized with sinners. He welcomed them at his table. He included those that were searching for real-life answers. But he was also full of truth, which means that he wasn't afraid to speak the truth about sin and the damaging effects of sin on our lives. And so it's been a difficult—I think every the Christians in our church have responded differently. Some are completely silent about the issue of homosexuality. They don't want to get involved. They're afraid of conflict with their neighbors and friends and co-workers. Others have seen a greater threat, I think, uh, with the redefining of marriage, recognizing that marriage is pre-political. Uh, it's an institution given by God— uh, 
before politics ever entered on the scene. We can't keep someone from practicing in private what they will, but I think that there is a really big problem with just a uh, kind of a blanket acceptance of the redefining of marriage as anything other than between a man and a woman the way that uh, God ordained it. We also have with us my son, uh, Dan Betters, who is the senior pastor of a Presbyterian Church in America congregation, Stone's Throw in Middletown, Delaware. And Dan, I know that your generation in particular is uh, really beginning to question historic biblical interpretations of passages that we're going to be discussing here today, especially among millennials. There seems to be a real shift in their attitudes toward how we have interpreted historic evangelicalism has interpreted these passages. Uh, What have you found in your congregation to be uh, the reaction to things like the gay marriage bill, etc.? Well, our congregation is largely made up of a lot of millennials, and I think that the big reaction that I've seen among Christians in in our congregation is a distinction between political decisions and what the Bible says. So what I am seeing is that a lot of young Christians believe what the Bible says about homosexuality. They believe that it's a sin. They believe that it's 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 uh, that it's not part of God's intention for human sexuality, but they also believe that when the Supreme Court comes down with a decision, that they they can consciously make that distinction between what a Supreme Court says and what the Bible says, so that although marriage might be legal in the United States, it's, it's still wrong, morally speaking. Very similar to what many of them believe about, you know, maybe abortion. And so for them, the, the authority is not the Supreme Court. The definition of marriage remains the same. They're okay with, or they're, they're, not, they're not willing to or need to fight against a, a political measure. And so I think that what I've been encouraging our congregation with specifically is, is to define what truth is. And recently we've been, we've been preaching a series through Ephesians, and when Paul gets to Ephesians chapter 5, he tells us to flee from all sexual immorality, uh, that, that it's not even to be named among us. And he goes on and makes this profound statement that though that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of Christ. And so what I've encouraged the congregation with, and the young people in our congregation with, any old people like, is that if that's true, if the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of Christ, our job first is to define what does the Bible say about sexual immorality? What is it? Because that, that's, a, that's a really big statement that they will not inherit the kingdom of Christ, which of course is in opposition to what a lot of the LGBTQ uh, community within the Christian church is saying. And so our job as Christians, I believe, as the church is to define what does the Bible define sexual morality as, and, and, and what we believe and what for thousands of years the, the church has said is that sexual intercourse is between a man and a woman in the context of marriage, which God created, in, as we find in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in the creation accounts. And so what we have to do then, if, if that is true, if it's true that any kind of sex outside of marriage is what Paul would define as sexual immorality, any kind of sex outside of heterosexual marriage if the, is, is, is sinful, and if the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of Christ, it's the job of the church to speak the truth in love. And that is the greatest act of love. It's not affirming. It's not acceptance. The greatest act of love is this is the truth and to not depart from the truth. And so... In our church, what we've been doing is we have been defining what, what truth is and encouraging the congregation to, to learn what that truth is and to, to understand that when they share that truth, when they teach that truth, when they communicate that truth, that is the greatest act of love. We also have with us uh, Dr. Chuck L. Betters. This is another one of our sons, and uh, Chuck has uh, 
become the senior pastor of the Glasgow Church, which is the church I served for 30 years. I'm really blessed as uh, as a father to have two sons who are in the Presbyterian Church in America ordained ministry. Chuck, you have taken over as the senior pastor during a, a cultural shift that has taken place over the years. And you have a congregation made up of what we'll call the old timers and the new timers. And uh, what have you found in terms of the new the new timers, the millennial people, the younger people, what has been their response to the church's attitude toward homosexuality? I think it's been confusion uh, because the, the issue is is that everyone knows a homosexual. Everyone has a a friend, a relative, maybe even a brother or sister, maybe a son or a daughter who has embraced that lifestyle or is struggling against that lifestyle. And so there's there's confusion as to um, how to address that, how to interact with them, especially when you look at some of the theologians that are coming on the scene, like Matthew Vines, who is who claims to be an evangelical, but is also, he calls it affirming of the homosexual lifestyle. It's not even acceptance of it, it's not tolerance of it, it's not love the sinner and, and, and hate the sin, it's an actual affirmation. And he goes as far as to say that those who forbid gay marriage are false teachers who promote hostility towards God's creation. So he finds that there are certain people who are created that way, who are created as homosexuals, uh, not even as part of the fall, but as part of God's eternal plan. You know, in preparation for this interview, um, my wife and I were in the car listening to a recording by a well-known rock star, musician, who came out uh, and announced by way of an email to his entire uh, fan base that he is gay. And as I listened to the letter that he wrote, as I, as I listened to the words, it was very convincing. Uh, he used all kinds of personal arguments. I'm being true to myself. I'm being honest for the first time in my life. I am happier now than I've ever been before. I hope you will all accept me for who I am and know my heart, etc. Very, very specific language, Jim, that he used to convey the fact that, hey, I'm a good guy. Uh, I love the Lord just like everybody else loves the Lord, but I'm finally being true to who I am. I am a gay man. I am going to be involved in a relationship with another man, and I hope you Christians can accept it. Now, Jim, if that man were sitting in front of you right now, what would you say to him? I would say a few things. I, th I think first I'd say that one of the things that makes this particular sin so confusing and so difficult is that it is often wrapped in this veneer of love and commitment and acceptance. And if you can think of any more subtle and dangerous way for Satan to package sin, then I challenge you to do that. Because that's what's so challenging about this is that it, it has this feeling of, how can it be wrong because it's wrapped in so much love? How can it be wrong when it's wrapped in so much commitment? And the second thing I'd say to someone like that, and I have said this to, to more than one person, many people in fact, is that when God created us, he created us in his image. And he created us uniquely male and female. And when sin entered this world, that part of us, that image that God had imprinted on us was, was broken. It's not completely and utterly destroyed. But the image of God is broken in man today. And the brokenness of that image finds many expressions in this life. 
And in some people, it, it's, it leads to addiction, drug addiction and alcohol addiction. And for others, it leads to pornography addiction. And for some, it leads to an even, uh, I think, deeper and twisted brokenness, uh, the utter unturning or undoing of our, of our very sexual identity. But that just goes to show us how far the effects of sin have, have impacted humanity. And, they, and, and sin has affected us all in one way or the other in, in a very great way. But, and then I would, I would talk to that person about what Jesus is offering them. Uh, Jesus is offering them forgiveness of sins and the radical restoration of the image of God in them, where he promises to make them a new creation and deliver them from not only their sin of homosexuality or same-sex attraction, but from all sin and to bring them into a right relationship with him, which makes all the difference. Two of the great resources that the the gay community has published in recent years uh, are uh, books written by Matthew Vines and Ken Wilson. And in these books, they make certain arguments that I think we need to address. And one of those arguments, Dan, is that they'll say things like, how many of you know gay people personally? Vines and Wilson both relate stories of people who were sure that the Bible condemned homosexuality. However, they were brought to a a change of mind because they got to know some gay people personally. And their conclusions were, these are great people, these are loving people, these are caring people. And I think it's certainly important for Christians who are not gay to hear the hearts and stories of people who are battling same-sex attraction. But the older belief system would have been that sin is sin, we call sin, sin, and there is no room, there's no toleration whatsoever for any acceptance of the gay lifestyle because I have a friend. I have a relative, I have a brother, I have a sister, I have an uncle, I have an aunt, I have an elder or a deacon, or strangely, I have a pastor who is gay. And when you look at those kinds of arguments, Dan, what, what's your response when people try to use the, the language of, hey, I know gay people, uh, gay people are some of my best friends, and uh, what, what's your problem with what they're doing with their lives privately? Where we are today culturally is is a product of a whole bunch of different factors. And of course, time, I think, limits us from discussing all those. But I'll, I'll try to stick within the Christian church, because um, that's who right now our primary audience is, is to talk to Christians about how to address some of these debates, some of these arguments, the conversations with their friends. I think it's a good thing. One of the, one of the good things about your question is this, is that for many years, I think that Christian pastors and pulpits have demonized homosexuality over other sins in youth ministries and all kinds of areas. And I think that that emphasis, what it does is it destroys, I think, any semblance of the human soul that, or maybe that man is made in the image of God, even in a homosexual. And so they become the enemy. And many homosexual kids I know that were sitting in my own youth ministry maybe sat in those in those seats wondering if, if they are the enemies of the church as well. And so I think that maybe what a positive thing that comes out of that discussion, when you know a homosexual, is that this is a person I, I care for and that I love and that I have a deep connection with. And so the conversation turns from just trying to be right to trying to understand and trying to help and trying to share Jesus with them, trying to share the gospel in a very real, meaningful, and authentic way. Um, I think that one of the other factors culturally is that within the church, there's been this, I know it's been called before, um, a therapeutic moral deism, and the idea of you're meant to be happy. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be yourself. 
you only live once, you know, the YOLO generation, <laughs> be true to yourself. These have become theological precepts rather than just bumper stickers and t-shirts that people are wearing. Uh, and Christians have bought into them wholesale where it's, God just wants me to be happy. And so when that's the message from pulpits for years and years and years, and young people are growing up with this, and adults now have, have, have been fed this kind of theology for years, it's a really natural jump to just say, well, if I only want to be happy and being gay makes me happy or makes my friend happy or whoever happy, then there, there shouldn't be anything wrong with that if it's just about love. Uh, so maybe we say God is love, but we forget that God is also holy. God is also just. God is also righteous. God is also merciful. God is also omnipotent and omniscient. And so I think that some of our theology in, in our circles has helped this along. And when I read men like Matthew Vines and uh, some of the other authors that, that agree with his position, what, what they're basically saying is follow your heart. This is from a direct quote from, from Matthew Vines. He's speaking about Matthew chapter 7. That, that seems to be his thesis. In Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus talks about how false teachers will produce bad fruit, he says that good teachings, even when they are very difficult, are not destructive to human dignity. And if we just have to listen closely to his quote here. They don't lead to emotional and spiritual devastation and to the loss of self-esteem and self-worth. And I think those key words there, self-esteem and self-worth, have often been preached in Christian circles. And we're not talking about self-esteem in Christian theology. We're talking about that Jesus is the object of our worship. He's where we find our esteem. He's our identity. And so I think that, theologically speaking, what I try to encourage people with is that it's not about following your heart. In fact, the Scriptures say the exact opposite. It says that our hearts are deceitful and beyond cure, and that God searches the heart, rewards us according to our conduct, according to what our deeds deserve. And I think that there's a theology there that's underlying, that's allowed this kind of teaching to come in to say, if you're happy, it must be true, it must be right. And, and I just think that Christians are reacting to what they've been taught for years and years and years and years, where instead of the call to repentance, it's a call to... Let's, let's have our best life, let's, let's be as happy as we can, let's be ourselves. But rather, the gospel calls for a complete transformation and a complete dependence on Jesus as Savior. You know, as I'm listening to you three men talk, I'm, of course, looking at the generation coming behind me. I am in the baby boomer generation, and you guys are behind us. And your ministries are, you're cutting your teeth in ministry now in a cultural age that's different than mine. Chuck, I remember when when I first started in the ministry, uh, divorce was considered to be something anathema. It was considered to be one of the worst moral choices you could ever make. And over the years or the span of my ministry, I've watched that erode. Doing exactly what Dan was just speaking of, the church basically got to the point of, hey, I, I need to be happy. And in this marriage, I'm not happy. And so rather than divorcing on scriptural grounds, I'm going to divorce on non-scriptural grounds because I deserve to be happy. So now today, what we have in the church is a basically a Christian cultural acceptance of divorce. I feel like at times we lost that battle. Uh, is the same thing going to be said of the next generation coming after you as far as homosexuality is concerned? Well, I certainly hope not, but if I were to project it, I would say that 100 years from now, homosexuality, gay marriage— uh, and those who opposed it, that those of us who did so will be viewed in the same way that those who uh, were in favor of slavery. I think that that's where it's all headed. Um, and I think you, you touched on this, uh, the idea that we've turned away from the Scriptures, and I think some of that is our own fault. Many times we look at what's happening politically, and that is more of our guide than uh, what the Scriptures have to say. For instance, you have young people who are coming up, young people who are maybe questioning 
their sexuality and they see individuals who have had two and three marriages basically condemning homosexuality. And so they see the hypocrisy there. And so that's, it's a tough thing for these young people coming up. And I think there's a lot of young people who they may not have even chosen a gay lifestyle 20 years ago, but now because they're affirmed by so many people, they might be choosing that in the future. There seems to be a, uh, not seems to be, there is a, an acceptance in the media and the arts when it comes to the gay lifestyle. Their, their relationships are glorified. And people who oppose their relationships in movies or the arts or whatever are considered to be the bigots and the non-loving, non-caring people. And I've, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but any of you can respond to this. I, I've noticed that the church is presented in such a false light in the media and in the arts. Uh, we are the slave owners, quote unquote, of generations ago. We are the bigots. We are the the homophobes and how do we break that? How does the church begin to bust through that mindset, uh, that cultural mindset that's out there in the media and the arts? Well, I think that some of those stereotypes exist because some of it's true. I think that there's been a lot of churches that, and a lot of Christians who, who fit that stereotype. And I think that the way that you, you know, to use your words, bust through, <laughs> I think that churches must it hasn't changed for 2,000 years. They must preach Christ. They must preach the gospel. They must preach the full gospel, the call away from sin, the call to hate your sin, the call to repentance, the call to receiving and resting on Jesus alone, as you know, our confession says, as he's offered to us in the gospel, to saving faith. But they must also be called to sanctification, to do battle with their, with their sin. And, and as Jim, you know, you said earlier was that, you know, which I really loved is that you often what Jesus does, Jesus changes us. And and I, I think that what happens is the church gets these pet issues, pastors get pet issues, and like Chuck said a little bit earlier, our our, our exegesis starts to come from, you know, news networks and the latest and greatest book, rather than from spending time laboring over God's word, laboring over, laboring over the scriptures and realizing Jesus is is bringing all this to a head, that he is ruling over our over our world, that he is conquering our enemies, and he's coming back to restore all things. I think we need to preach the good news of the gospel. And I think that involves addressing issues like this. I, I really do. But I think when it becomes the pet issue, what, ha- what ends up happening is a lot of people turn it into the central issue. And, and, and that's what media outlets are going are gonna to latch onto. That's where the story is. And so I think that some of those stereotypes exist in the arts, because stereotypes exist for other things in the arts too as well, because we attach those, we think they're funny, we think they're humorous, and our emotion, we're emotionally attached to them. But there, there's also truth there that I think the church needs to investigate and say, okay, why do people see us this way? I mean, you shared with me a long time ago when you have two people sitting on a, on a couch and counseling for marriage counseling, and the husband and the wife are both saying different things. And the wife is saying, I don't... Uh, he doesn't love me, and the husband's. Uh, well, wh- wh- what do you mean? Uh, he, she doesn't. I don't love her. Uh, of course, I love her. How could she know that I don't? I don't love her. And then you, you will tell the the husband. I've used this a million times too, as well. Since then, is there's a reason why she thinks what she what she thinks. There's a reason why she's saying what she's saying. I think the church needs to stop saying, "Well, we're not all like that," or "We're not." You know, that's not us. That's not us. That's not us. We need to, why is the gay community looking at us as bigots, as hateful? as, you know, for lack of a better term, jerks. Why do they ignore us? Why do they look at us that way? And what can we do to, and I think that's already been said around the table here, is there's love, there's truth, there's the gospel. Yeah, I agree with everything uh, that Dan just said. I think that 
oftentimes the church's response to this whole issue of homosexuality is one of fear. Mm-hmm. And fear dominates the way that we speak about homosexuality as sin. And uh, we don't, as Christians, we don't need to respond in fear. Uh, we've been given freedom. Uh, and we need to think about this as it relates to all of our different contexts from ministry and missions and evangelism. Never are we to respond in fear. The other thing I'd say is that the church needs to become very savvy at creating safe places for people to come and talk about their struggles with homosexuality without people feeling like they are the pariah of the church and that they're going to be judged or written off or labeled or, or anything like that. One of the things that I've always been attracted to in Jesus is that he he never tried to put people into categories. He never tried to put uh, labels over people, which he very easily could have done. But he always saw them first as people. And that's why the Gospels, as you read the Gospels, one of the things that you find over and over again is the evangelists, the Gospel writers, talking about the way Jesus looked at people. He saw them, and he had compassion on them. And I think that as the gay community and those struggling with homosexuality in the church see that the church can have a compassionate response to all sin, including their sin, there will be, hopefully, more opportunities to discuss these things, to bear one another's burdens, to have real redemption take place in in, uh, gospel-centered groups of, of different kinds. One of the things that I am learning from this whole discussion over the the past five or six years, especially as we've tried to enter into the public debate over the the matter of gay marriage, is it seems to me, Chuck, that the gay community is saying to us, uh, if you're really going to say you love me, then you have to accept my behavior as it's okay for me and quit calling it sin, quit saying that it's sinful. How do we bridge that gap between the acceptance of the individual and loving that individual without, at the same time, calling out the sin? Well, I think that you hit on something, and Dan as well, uh, when he talked about the, the, the couple on the couch and the marriage counseling disagreeing with one another, is you have to start with the right premise. It's, it's not only acceptance, as I said earlier, it's, it goes a step beyond that. It's affirming. It's affirmation. It's saying what you are doing is not only not sinful, it is a good thing, and that you should be, you should be rejoicing with this, and the church should be coming around you, and, and it's not a sin what you're doing. So I think it's very important for us to start off with the right premise, because we're, we're basically saying, many times we're saying we need to love the sinner, um, when the reality is, is they don't believe that it's a sin in the first place. And that's, that's a tough place to start from when we're not even speaking the same language. So you have some, uh, the Matthew Vines crowd, who would say that uh, scriptures say that this is not a sin, and then you have the liberal, uh, homosexual, scholarly crowd that would say, no, scripture says that it's a sin, but yet we reject those scriptures. We don't believe in inerrancy, or we believe that the context isn't understood properly. So you have to start on the same page, and I think that's a big problem, is that we're not even starting on the same page. And, and you have to also differentiate between those who are struggling against same-sex attraction, so they understand it's a sin, they understand that it's wrong, and those who have rejected the scriptures or they have a different understanding of the scriptures. I think there's, it's very nuanced and it's, it's individualized depending on who you're talking to. This is the end of part one of Dr. Better's interview with three pastors about the impact of our culture's view of same-sex attraction on Christians and our local churches. 
You can find part one at www.markinc.org. In part two, our panel will unpack six specific scriptural references about same-sex attraction. This teaching resource is meant to accompany Mark Inc.'s Help and Hope series on same-sex attraction. Visit markinc.org to find the compelling interviews on same-sex attraction. At markinc.org, you will also find numerous other resources that offer help and hope to hurting people. You can connect with us through our website, and we encourage you to leave your response to our resources.